0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hillcrest. Great to have everybody in the house this morning. Great to have all of you, wherever you may be. To those of us at Spanish Trail, welcome. We love our family at Spanish Trail and pray that God is blessing each of you in your summertime activities, as crazy as this world is, that we continue to live in. And to those of you that are worshiping online, we know that most of our people at Hillcrest are voting with their feet. Amen? And so we realize that I'm preaching to more people online than I am in the house these days, which is a little bit unusual, but we realize why most of the Hillcrest people in my neighborhood where Judy and I live, Judy and I are the only ones physically coming to church in all of our neighborhood. I have several neighbors. They all have reasons why. Uh, They need to worship from home, and most people do as well. And so wherever you may be, we're grateful that you're here. Thanks for being here at the uh, 9.30 worship hour or 8.30 worship hour at uh, at 9 Mile, 8.30 or 9.30 at Spanish Trail. And in just a couple of weeks, we'll all be back to 9.30 again. More about that here in just a little bit. Before we begin this morning, let me say thank you to my wonderful colleagues. We have some great teaching preachers at Hillcrest Baptist Church, do we not? Would you join me in saying thank you to them? (laughs) While I had a little bit uh, of time off in the month of July, which is customary for me, and uh, spent a lot of time getting ready for what we're going to do later on in the fall and uh, our preaching through next year. And so we are very excited about what the Lord is going to do. The only problem about those guys is they preach awfully short. Did you notice that? Can I just say this morning, those days are over, over. So let's get with it uh, today. I'm going to be a little bit uh, jumping around in the scriptures, and so if you want to just open your Bible, if you've got a sermon guide, that's great too. Uh, We'll be using multiple scriptures as we return this morning to a series that I began uh, last February uh, before we were so rudely interrupted by worldwide contagion. And uh, effective as of the 22nd of March, we felt like uh, because of the uncertainty and the great scattering that ensued therein, that we would be wise to kind of stop that series because we didn't know what to expect. So we turned our attention to matters that were a little bit more germane for the time that we were in then. Today, I think, is a good time for us to return to our study, I believe, this is a study of the fundamental beliefs of our faith, and as a a, a framework of reference. Many of you will remember we started learning what has been known throughout much of church history as the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a statement of faith. It's been around for something like 1,800 years. There are numbers of different creeds that have been utilized by the Orthodox Church throughout the centuries that there has been a church, but none is more recognized, none is more used, none is more recalled, none is more easily memorable than the one we're using as a guidepost known as the Apostles Creed. Today, we're just going to kind of um, get on the on-ramp again, if I can phrase it that way. We're going to relaunch the series this morning, and we're going to do it by just uh, reminding everyone of some of what we talked about in the first three messages of the series last February and beginning in the first part of March. By the way, if you want to watch those three messages in their entirety, they're archived out on our website, and so you could go to them and pull them down and watch them. What I'm going to do this morning is to take those three messages, basically, and put them all together in one compound message, a little bit briefer than obviously preaching all three of them individually. But I think that in this summary today, we do well by beginning with an understanding of what we mean when we talk about a creed to begin with. What is a creed? Well, as I said a moment ago, all in the world a creed is, is simply a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith, and we have many of them. For us as a church, we have a statement of faith. It's called the Baptist Faith and Message, which historically has never been referred to as a creed. It's been more referred to as a confession of faith, but the two fundamentally are the same thing. Confession and a creed is almost a distinction without a difference. A creed is a summary of basic Christian beliefs. If you're familiar with the little yellow books that you can see in bookstores, a creed is basically Christianity for dummies, okay? It takes complex matters and reduces them to aid in our memory to their simplest forms. So a creed is just an abbreviated statement that's designed to set forth the basics of our faith. Now let me say again that while creeds I think can be enormously helpful for us, they can also be problematic if we take a creed and use it as a substitute for the Bible. Everybody with me? So, a creed is not the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God. Somebody say, Amen. And so, a creed is only as good, as useful, as profitable, as it is based and shaped by the Scriptures themselves. And so, we begin by simply saying, We believe the Bible is the Word of God. But there are lots of Christian groups, there are lots of crazy groups that will say, oh, yeah, we believe the Bible. So everybody says that who stamps their forehead with the term Christian. Creeds help us articulate exactly what it is that we say we believe about the Bible. And toward that end, they can be, I think, positive tools for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give a couple of words of clarification about the Apostles' Creed itself. First of all, it's not the only historic creed of the church. There's the Nicene Creed, there's the Athanasian Creed, there's all kinds of confessions that have been written throughout uh, the centuries. It's just the oldest and the shortest, which makes it the most memorable, and like those sermons you heard uh, over the last three or four weeks, we like things brief, amen. And so the briefer the confession, the briefer the creed, the better we like it and the more people tend to are gravitated to it. So that's the first thing. It is not the only creed. Uh, two, contrary to the title, the apostles of the early church did not author the uh, Apostles' Creed. The reason that it carries the title Apostles' Creed is because what's drawn or what's in the Apostles' Creed is basically drawn from the preaching and teaching of the early apostles. The Apostles' Creed was put together by church leaders two or three hundred years after the first century period of the church. And so toward that end, we've been using the Apostles' Creed for 1,700, 1,800 years as a church, but it wasn't written by the apostles. It's important because what it contains is the fundamental underlying structure of what was important during the apostolic ministry of the early church, what those men preached as the gospel of God. And then a third thing that I would mention about the Apostles' Creed is that, is it by no means exhaustive? It's not. There's a lot that's not in the Apostles' Creed. For example, as we'll read the Apostles' Creed here in a minute, you'll find it doesn't say anything about the Word of God. doesn't say anything about the Scriptures. doesn't say anything about a lot of things. If you want an exhaustive uh, study of Christian faith, you'd have to get you a big old 1,200-page systematic theology that will unpack the lion's share of what we believe. That's not the purpose of a creed. So you just need to understand as we go into it, yet again, that it's not totally exhaustive. Many of you may say, well, what about this and what about that? Well, it can probably be contained under the major headings of the Apostle Creed, but there's a lot of things that aren't mentioned specifically, all right? It only covers the non-negotiables. Now, having said that, maybe we should take a moment before we begin today and um, go back and review exactly what the Apostle's Creed is says. Here's what it says. Do you remember it? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead on the Third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This is what we believe as articulated by the Apostles' Creed, taken from the Word of God and all God's people said, Amen. Now, let's go back and do a summary of the first two or three lines of the Apostles' Creed, or at least the first two or three phrases. That's, this is how far we got uh, back earlier this year. Three primary fundamentals that we covered that are articulated in the Apostles' Creed. Today we'll cover two of them about God the Father and then uh, a beginning point in our study of Christ the Son. First of all, we articulated that as the foundation of our faith, we believe in God the Father. That's the first line of the Creed. I believe in in God the Father. And let me just say this morning, this is the way a Christian worldview has to begin. I mean, we, we talk with our friends and our neighbors with respect to what it is we believe. We have to believe right here. Namely, fundamentally, I believe that there is a God. I believe that there is a God who is behind everything that is, <clears throat> everything that I can observe, every human being with whom I come into contact. I believe. That God exists, and I believe that not only does God exist, but I believe that God can be known personally. He is God the Father, one of the most beloved of the many biblical images that we have of God contained in the pages of the Bible. In fact, there are about 260 references just in the New Testament to God as Father. And virtually every time, our Lord Jesus Christ opened up his lips to pray. He prayed to his heavenly what? Father. And so this is a very, this very common language that Jesus used of God. In fact, it's through the discipline of prayer that most of us in the room today identify with God as Father. Because truth be told, if I were to ask you this morning, when you begin to pray, how do you typically start your prayers? Most of you would say something like, well, I start by saying Heavenly Father or Father in heaven, or something along those lines. And so it's through this discipline of prayer that many of us have come to understand God as Father, at least in terms of our mind, because that's fundamentally how Jesus taught his immediate disciples and all of us as disciples to pray. That's contained in the gospel accounts, particularly Luke chapter 11, when the disciples had seen Jesus praying as a matter of course. And they come to Jesus, connecting the prayer life of Jesus with the obvious power that they saw coming from the ministry of Jesus. The disciples were rather sharp, at least in making that connection, because they saw Jesus was working wonders of power, and they saw that He was spending lots of time in prayer, sometimes around them, sometimes separated from them. And they made the connection between the two. So because they wanted the kind of power that they observed in the life of Jesus, they came to Jesus and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And it's at that point Jesus gave them the model prayer, what we often call the Lord's Prayer, but it really is a framework, it's a model. The the prayer that Jesus gives in Luke 11 and in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 is really kind of an Apostles' Creed form of prayer. It doesn't include everything that we ought to pray about, but it's a framework, it's a kind of a summary prayer that should shape the way that we approach God. And it was a prayer that began this way, our what? Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now we've heard that prayer and the rest of it you know, we've heard it so often that we tend to take it for granted, but really in Jesus' time this was a radically new way to pray. Most Orthodox Jews, in fact, the great lion's share of them, would have never considered approaching God as Father. That was something that was reserved for the patriarchs. God was a Father, but He was the Father to Abraham, and He was the Father to Isaac, and He was the Father to Jacob. But no Jew during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ that I'm aware of would have had this fabric, this framework of understanding God as a father, much less approaching God as father. They would have considered that somewhat sacrosanct. They would have considered it borderline blasphemous, far too intimate, far too cavalier, far too flippant, far too casual for the average person to dare approach God in that way. And then, of course, Jesus took it even further in his ministry by showing that in prayer, not only can we call God Father, but he made it even more personal when he referred to God as what? Abba, Daddy, Papa, which would have been even more alienating to the average Jew. And so this was a radically new way to pray. To God as a God not only that exists, to God who is not only an all-powerful creator God, but to a God who is very personal, a God that we can talk to, a God that we can address in simple terms, a God that we can approach, a God that we can seek. Now, what does that mean for the average believer? Well, it means, first of all, if, we, if God is our Father, it means for us that we're God's children. Amen. And I don't know anything really any more significant in my life, I don't know of a greater advantage in any way, shape, or form than the advantage that comes to me with the recognition that I belong to God as a child, that I'm connected to God in some way, that there may not be a bloodline to God, but there is a spirit line to God. There's spiritual DNA straight from the throne of heaven that's placed into my life from the moment that I surrendered to God and believed in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, The New Testament writers couch it in terms of adoption. Not only am I saved, I'm adopted into the very family of God. And so this is a great revelation for every believer that you need to understand, namely that God has not only given us physical life. We're not only here because God has given us life physically in the body, But if we know him by faith, we'll live forever because we're connected to him through the gift of new life, which comes as a part of the gift of faith. God's not a father to everybody. You'll hear that said a lot. We're all God's children. No, we're really not. We're all God's creation. We're all God's offspring, if you want to use it that way. We all come from God. We're all created the image of God. But that doesn't mean that we're automatically children of God. The New Testament is very clear that you've got to become a child of God. That comes as a matter of response to what God has done for you in the gift of Jesus Christ. John 1 12, for example, but to as many as received him, that's Jesus, to as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to what? To become children of God, which means that before you do that, you're not a child of God. We are given the right to become children of God. How? Even to those who faith believe in his name. So God becomes the father of everybody who believe. What a tremendous statement of the incredible love of God. For those who belong to him. Now, let me say this morning that I'm well aware that a statement like that can be off putting to some because not everybody gets real excited about the fatherhood of God. And you know why? Because you didn't have a really good daddy here. Sometimes we have sour relationships with our father. And I'm convinced today in 2020 America, you know what I ask whenever I see all these protests that are going on? All these terrible things that could and should turn your stomach. And I'm okay with protesting. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to live it. and some things need to be protested. And I'm thankful we live in a land of freedom where we can do it. But I don't think we ought to do it like it's being done before our eyes. But you know what I you know what the first thing I think of? Where are the fathers? You all know what would happen to me if I pulled a stunt like that? I'm not even gonna go there this morning. I wouldn't have even thought about it. And there was a reason for that. First thing comes to my mind, where are the fathers? They're not there. And they're not there for a lot of reasons. And a lot of that anger that's coming out may be even a result of that. So I realize when I talk about the fatherhood of God, not everybody automatically connects with that. Not everybody jives with that. And I get it. But here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to import the faults of your earthly fathers onto a holy God. That's not a good thing to do. You say, well, I, I didn't have a really good experience with my father. No, but you wish you did. You wish you had of. You'd have given everything if you had have had that. But God is everything about a father that you might have missed this side of heaven. He doesn't make mistakes. His discipline is always good and holy and just and fair. He's always there for you. He's always willing to listen. He'll never bail out on you. Isn't that wonderful? You can have everything that you've ever looked for in a human parent by connecting with a holy God who will never Let you down. I think, didn't we sing that a moment ago? He will never leave us. He will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He'll never let you down. You may let yourself down. Circumstances may let you down. But because God is Father, He never will. He's promised to love you, to cherish you, to nurture you, to support you, to provide for you, and everything in between until one day we're forever together in his glorious presence in an eternal kingdom where we won't have to protest anything anymore. Can I have an amen this morning? So this is where the creed begins. So so much I could say about it. We believe in God the Father, but at the same time about God, we believe in God the Creator. And perhaps we should have reversed these because this is kind of where most people's knowledge of God begins. Before you can understand God as Father, you first have to recognize Him as Creator. Because that's really how the biblical revelation starts, doesn't it? The most familiar verse in the Bible across the board by believers and even unbelievers uh, alike is probably the very first words of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That may be, across the board, uh, the most familiar verse in the Bible, rivaled only because of football and baseball games by John three sixteen. How about that? Uh, so we, out of the beginning, right out of the gate, we're confronted with this all-powerful concept of God, not the relational side of God, but the majestic side of God. The creative power of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the authors of the Apostle Creed realize that that has to be part of the fabric of Orthodox Christianity. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Don't miss that word because that word is often lost between Father and Creator. But it's because God is Almighty that he is creator. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Creator, not maker. Some versions do say maker. Creator is probably a better term. But God God really didn't make the heavens and the earth. God really didn't fashion the heavens and the earth because God did it out of no preexistent material whatsoever, which is something you can't do. You might be a great furniture maker you might be a great home builder, uh, you might uh, fashion all kinds of things in your wood shop, but the reality is you didn't create any of those things. You made every one of them because you used pre materials in the process. God is not uh, hog-tied or hamstrung because He doesn't have any pre wood <clears throat> or pre stone or preexistent other types of tools, God's not hamstrung by that. He doesn't need anything. So God created and He did so out of absolutely nothing with no aid of any kind. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was what? Created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Did y'all see that say amen. So if you write in your Bible outside of Genesis 1:1 in the margin, you ought to write Hebrews 11:3 because that's a great commentary on Genesis 1:1. God's divine power is so great that he made the universe and the world by simply opening up his mouth and making a decree. God said it so and it was so. God said, "Let there be light," and there was Light. And again, listen, we're weeping. There's so much I could say about this. The reason I had a whole message, this is a message you ought to go back and, and listen to. Because we have pushed the creative power of God in the culture, in the schools, in the academies, in the neighborhoods. We've pushed the creative power of God to the margins. And by and large, across the world, we bought into the lie that basically is Darwinian that says we're all accidents. We're here by happenstance, random chance of occurrence. And it all started millions of years ago and through the process of evolution that we came to be just as we are. And because of that, That's part of the reason that we're reaping a whirlwind in our culture today because we've basically communicated for decades and decades now to little children and to teenagers that they're basically nothing more than accidents of nature. They're really no different from animals. And listen, you pound into the minds of moldable, shapeable young human beings for long enough, that they're nothing more than animals, and pretty soon they're going to start believing it. And when they start believing it, it should be no surprise to us that that's exactly the way they start to live. And so it's no surprise why we see much of what we see on the evening newscast uh, or whenever it is you get your news in these modern times. But the Bible says something completely distinct, that God is preeminent, and he's where we all came from. God not only created the heavens and the earth, God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And listen, when God loses preeminence, humanity loses significance. If, if you don't come from God, you really are no different from an animal. And it doesn't matter. You don't matter, truthfully. But you do matter. And you know why? Because you're creating the image of God. You've got not only the divine spark, you've got the divine DNA coursing throughout your very being. And it makes perfect logical sense to understand this is Not only where the heavens came from, this is not only where the universe came from, this is not only where the world came from, this is where we all came from. I believe in the power of natural forces, but I think natural forces are always limited in terms of what natural forces by themselves can accomplish. Natural forces cannot write a book. Natural forces cannot compose a majestic symphony or an opera or even a popular song for that matter. I mean, that would be like, as I've said before, it'd be like you taking a trip. I saw the president giving an address from Mount Rushmore just a few weeks ago. And can you imagine the president turning around and looking at Mount Rushmore and saying, you know, isn't it amazing, my fellow Americans, what a little wind and rain over a billion years can accomplish? Isn't that marvelous? No, no. Every one of us knows that that stuff didn't happen by natural forces. That's there because... Somebody really intelligent (laughs) had a vision and got up there and went to work and created it. And that's what God has done with the heavens and the earth and with every single one of us. You're the most priceless thing that God ever made. You've got a DNA code that's as equally remarkable as anything you can observe with your eye. And let me tell you something about that DNA code that's in the cells within your body. Somebody had to write that code. Something that sophisticated. It's impossible for it to happen all on its own. And the Bible is clear, and the creed trumpets who that somebody is. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Him. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I don't know all the details about how He did it, and I don't have to know the details. But the world and the universe testify that there is a master designer who stands behind everything that is. Everybody with me so far? I believe, we believe in God the Father, we believe in God the creator. And then finally, just to touch on it this morning, we believe in Christ the Son. Y'all remember that the most important question that Jesus Himself ever asked, uh, He asked to Peter. Who do you, He actually asked it to all the disciples first. Who do you say that I am? Man, how you answer that question is critically important because there are eternal consequences with respect to your response. Who do you say that I am? Christ is well the creed gives us uh, an appropriate response to that statement I believe in Jesus Christ God's only son our Lord now beginning next Sunday we'll have several messages that are just devoted to what the creed ascribes to Jesus Christ as the living Lord the son of God in fact two-thirds of the apostles creed is dedicated to Jesus have you noticed that I mean, there's a little bit dedicated to God, Creator, Father, and and there's basically just a a sentence or two to other very important things. But boy, Jesus takes up that big middle chunk, something like uh, 68 of the just over 100 words that are used in the Apostles' Creed are used in reference to Jesus. There is a reason that we are called Christians, brothers and sisters, and that's highlighted in the Apostles Creed. Now, for most, the first thing that tends to come to mind when we speak of Jesus as the Son of God is that as a son, he was obviously born, right? And I'll have more to say about that next week. Born of the Virgin Mary. If you want to have an understanding about the virgin birth, come back or tune in next Sunday because we're going to talk about the virgin birth, why it matters, what it is, why it's crucially important, why we can't have an Orthodox Christian faith apart from the virgin birth. And so when we think of God's Son, we think that here was a Lord who was first of all born, He was a human being. Look at Galatians 4 and 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so the first thing we know about Jesus is that he was fully human in every respect. He was physically born on the earth and that had to be so because of the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus came fundamentally to become our sacrifice. And the Bible makes that very clear in Hebrews 2:17. Therefore, Because of the mission that had to be done for us to have a chance at eternal life, for us to be saved and delivered from our sins, therefore Christ had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Everybody with me? He had to be born of a woman. He had to become a human being to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus is fully human, Son of God. But that phrase, Son of God, is also an incredibly important statement about the deity of Jesus Christ. In other words, while at the same time being fully human, Jesus is also fully God. Born of a woman, yes. Fully human, yes. But fully God at the same time. God in flesh. We call that the incarnation of God on the earth. Jesus himself took on flesh came to earth in the likeness of human beings to make His dwelling among us, John chapter 1. His purpose for doing that, John chapter 1 also tells us, was to exegete God, to explain what God is like. None of us have ever seen God until Christ came. That was the purpose, to make God known in a way that was clear and Understandable. In fact, that was Jesus' own testimony about himself. Whoever has seen me, Jesus says, has seen who? The Father. Critically important statement. So we lay our eyes on God the Father when we fix our gaze on God the Son. And because Jesus is human born, because Jesus is God in the flesh, it's like a mathematical equation. That implies that Jesus, thirdly, is Lord of all. Fully human, fully God, because of that and because of his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, Christ is Lord of all. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless and until you declare Jesus Christ is Lord, Would you say that with me together? Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. That declaration is the earliest creedal declaration of Christ that you have in the history of the church. It's the earliest confession of the New Testament church. And it was the heart and soul of the preaching of the first century apostles. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Lord, and the reason we know that is because of how He demonstrated. He demonstrated His power over nature. He demonstrated His power over disease. He had uh, illustrated it with His power over disability, His power over death. I mean, this was a fully divine Son of God who claimed to be able to forgive sin. And so because of all of those things which were attested by the early apostles, witnessed in Jesus Christ, they recognized this is something only God can do, man. Only God can forgive sins. This is what the Pharisees said. You can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, that's right. Put two and two together, brothers. They never would. Never did. And Jesus comes to the end of it all, this side of the kingdom. And he expresses that in no uncertain terms. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's that confession, by the way, that caused so much trouble for the early believers, right? I mean, that's what got them boiled in oil That's what got them flayed like catfish. That's why they had their eyes gouged out and their tongues cut out and burned at the stake. Because of that confession, there's always a price to be paid. When you confess openly and publicly, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know why? Because when you make that statement, you're also at the same time making the confession nobody else is, including you which is the most painful of all. But yet, this is where Christianity begins. This is what you must believe. This is a confession you must make in order to follow Jesus, in order to be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved saved. Is there any wobble room with that? No, it's a confession you have to make in order to become a child of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where the Orthodox Christian faith begins with these opening three clauses of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. This is God's Word. Let all who agree say, Amen. Amen.